0: This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation? Huh? Sequels suck.
1: Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Wicked is good.
0: Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we talk about film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always I'm here with my co-host, James Hamrick.
1: What's up, dude? Nothing much. Uh, I'm a bit sleep deprived, but uh, spring break is just around the corner, so I'm excited. I'm excited <laughs> to talk about the movies as well. Um,
0: so we're going to be doing something a little different this week. Uh, we finished up the Chronicles of Narnia series last week, and we wanted to kind of close out our discussion on the Maze Runner trilogy because we talked about because we talked about the Maze Runner and the sequel, Scorch Trials, uh, back I think about probably a little over a year ago on Underrated. Um and then since then the new movie death, the death cure has come out and we wanted to talk about that but rather than just jump onto that we decided to kind of go back and do two mini sodes on um the first two films and give them you know the franchise fatigue treatment um so we, we, so what we'll be doing is we'll be putting out two mini this week uh one on Maze Runner and one on The Scorch Trials And then next week we will come back and do a full episode, you know, full normal episode on the death cure. But before we talk about that, I want to ask you guys uh, if you enjoy the show, to please head over to iTunes and give us a five star review and, uh, no, sorry, give us a five star rating and leave a review. That would be very helpful. And also, if you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook and uh, keep up to date with all the latest episodes and also give feedback uh, that can appear on the show. So, James, as we move into the main discussion, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, behind the scenes on this film?
1: So, uh, with the first book, uh, it was in 2005 that author James Dashner had finished the four-book series, The Jimmy Fincher Saga. Uh, Following that, Dashner made the decision to try for a national book market for his next project, which would uh, be The Maze Runner. Uh, The book itself is going to be based on an idea he had where, uh, and a quote from him was, it's about a bunch of teenagers living inside an unsolvable maze, full of hideous creatures. In the future, in a dy- in a dark dystopian world, it would be an experiment to study their minds. Terrible things would be done to them. Awful things, completely hopeless, until the victims turn. Uh, or until the victims turn everything on its head. Uh, and so the book would be published in 2009, and it, it was received to pretty positive reviews. It was also around the time, and I guess in a way we're still living it with a you know a bunch of YA books being popular. Um, I've heard from people who read these that you know these are among the better ones. So after following its popularity and just with the, the boom in adapting YA books into film, uh, a film adaptation of Maze Runner was announced in January of 2011 uh, with Katherine Hardwick and Noah Oppenheim acting as director and screenwriter respectively.
0: Hardwick coming over from having uh, directed the first Twilight film.
1: Yeah, so I guess she, she has experience in the in the realm of YA. Uh, however, Hardwick would soon leave the director's seat. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm i glad that the series was able to be injected with, with some solid direction because of this, this decision. Uh, she wouldn't be replaced until August of 2012 when Fox would announce Wes Ball will be directing Uh, Ball had directed a 3D sci-fi post-apocalyptic short film called Ruin, and was kind of presenting it and shopping it around was at 20th Century Fox in hopes of being picked up as a director. Uh, The studio initially considered uh, giving him the opportunity to direct his short film as a a full feature-length adaptation, um, mainly because of similarities they had noted between that and Maze Runner, which was still in development with them. Um, However, following Hardwick's departure... They instead just opted to hire Ball to direct the Maze Runner adaptation itself.
0: There's it a pretty cool story about when he was offered the job, and you know they kind of sent him home to read the book and the script. He went and used like you know the, uh, the a lot of the graphics he had created for Ruin and created a bunch of concept art you know, as a proof of concept when he went back to, you know, talk to them again. And there's a lot of similarities within the. Um, from the short just kind of the way the world looks kind of that overgrown aesthetic uh just the way he shoots action the lighting like you could see a lot of his directorial style in in that short that he then brought over uh into this feature film so uh after west ball was hired grant pierce myers was brought up brought on he wrote several drafts and then t.s nolan who was actually a friend and previous collaborator of west balls was brought on as writer and the funny thing is he had actually he had been working with west ball on you know the feature-length trilogy treatment of ruin that they were that they were shopping around to try to get uh the studios to work to, to option and then so he then was able to you know brought on after paul was hired and then he wrote uh the maze runner or co-wrote the maze runner him and Noah one oppenheim are the the two credited writers and then nolan went on to write the rest of the trilogy
1: so it came to uh sorry so when it came to casting the film, uh, Kaya Scodelario was Ball's first choice for Teresa uh, after being impressed by her in the TV series Skins. Uh, I haven't seen that, but I think it was a good choice. I think she's actually really good here. Um, Dylan O'Brien, uh, who was cast in the lead role, was initially rejected by Ball. Um, there's actually a really uh, a funny quote that I'm going to read, just Ball recounting the decision. It's pretty lengthy, but I think it's worth it. I uh, said, Dylan was actually, I saw him early on, very early on, and I overlooked him. It was a big learning experience there because I overlooked him because of his hair. He had teen wolf hair, <laughs> and I couldn't see past that. And so we were looking for our Thomas, and it's a tough role to make because he, because he comes in as a boy, and he leaves as a man. So it can't be like this badass action star that comes into this movie. It's about vulnerability up front, and then he comes out of it and comes into his own. And then the next movies are about the leader that emerges from the group. So finally Fox says, We just did this movie, The Internship. There's this kid that's in this thing. He's like 20 years old. We think he's kind of got something. So I watched this tape and was like, Wait a minute, I've seen this kid before. I looked him up online and there was one picture of him with a totally shaved head, and it's this sweet, vulnerable-looking kid. And I was like, Whoa, interesting. I said, Wait a minute, he's just so familiar. And I looked back at my old audition tapes, which we had thousands of, and there's Dylan. That guy said, No, definitely not him. So we brought him back in, and we started to talk with him, and I'm like, he's the coolest dude ever. And so shortly after bringing him back in, O'Brien was cast in the role he was initially rejected from. So when it came to casting uh, Chuck, there's another funny story involving uh, actor Blake Cooper. Uh, in an interview with Hypable, he actually talked about the process of getting cast in the film. Uh, he said, it started with my friend Olivia. She messaged me on Facebook saying that her favorite book was being made into a movie called The Maze Owner, And she thought I would be perfect for the role of Chuck. So my mom and I decided to look into it more and saw that it was being made into a movie and they were taking auditions for Chuck. So we decided to get in touch with our agent to see if she could get us an audition. And unfortunately, she couldn't get in touch with the casting director. So I decided to go to Twitter and see if I could find the director, Wes Ball, and see if he would give me a chance to audition. I asked him on Twitter. At first, he didn't know this, but a ton of Maze Runner fans noticed. And they started making fan art and fan casting, fan fiction stuff, (laughs) which was really cool. Then after a while, after Wes saw that, he decided to give me the chance to audition. And I did the audition, and they gave me some notes, and I did those. And then my agent contacted me one day, and she said that I got the part, and I freaked out. Man, that's got to be a cool story to, to be cast because you pestered the director just so long on Twitter. There's nothing—it uh, seems the the casting for the rest of, of the cast is pretty smooth. Uh, so after after they were cast, Ki uh, Hong Lee was cast as Minho. Thomas Brody Sangster as Newt, uh, Will Poulter as Galley, Amal Amin as Albie, uh, Alexander Flores as Winston, Dexter Darden as Frypan, and Patricia Clarkson as a- or Ava Page.
0: The th- a cool thing I noticed about how Westball casts the film is that he doesn't just go with what so many YA films have done and just go for very blandly pretty people. Like all the faces he has here are fairly interesting-looking people. Even like character, the background characters—they just have a distinctive face, and I think that, just, that just makes us. I think the the world engaging it, it, it in a weird way, kind of attaches you to the characters, as opposed to if they all kind of just look like they they walked off MTV or something like like uh, Dylan O'Brien did. Like even the like like, Kaya like she's she's a very she's a very attractive woman, but she's not she's not like the traditionally like traditionally beautiful actress usually get in the leads of a lot of these YA films. And I, I think I, I really appreciate that. I think it, it, it just adds a lot of character to the story.
1: It makes the film more memorable. I think
0: so. Uh, so Ecuadorian cinematographer Enrique Chediak was hired as the, as the DP principal photography began in May of 2013 near Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Everything in the glade was shot on location in a farm out in the country. They just found a field and shot there. They had to employ snake wranglers to catch and remove poisonous snakes that were all over the area. I heard like over 25 poisonous snakes were taken off set. Now, the sets for the maze itself were actually built in like a Sam's uh, an abandoned Sam's Club warehouse and the walls could be kind of moved around and rearranged to change up thing. And then obviously the, the maze uh, was extended digitally to make it super, super huge. I had a relatively short 42 day shooting schedule. It was originally set to be released on February of 2014, but then it got pushed back to its actual release date of September 19th, 2014. And so, James, uh, do you remember your first viewing, and uh, what has your relationship with these films been like over the years?
1: Yeah, so my first viewing of the film was actually for our underrated episode, uh, I think, last year, maybe two years ago. It may have been 2017 when we did it. Whenever it was, uh, though, that, that was my first viewing. I know that you you were excited and you had kind of uh, championed it for a bit. And so I was excited to see, you know, what it was you saw in it. And I really enjoyed it the first time. And it, I, I wasn't quite on your level uh, in terms of appreciation for it. But then as I, I watched the Scorch Trials and I realized how much invested I was in the first film, just because of how much I cared going into the second one. And then whenever The Death Cure finally came out, I rewatched both back to back. I ended up loving both of them considerably more. And so, yeah, I I really enjoyed it the first time I saw it. And I think I've only grown to like it more and more uh, since whenever it was that we we first covered it. Um, So I have a a
0: kind of fun relationship with these movies. Shortly after hearing that it was was going to be made, I I believe (laughs) connecting back to Narnia, I found out about this film because I was looking up Will Poulter, who was in The Voices on Treader. And that's how I found out this one was being made. And then I, I was kind of you know caught up in the YA craze and reading a lot of YA books. So I went back and knowing that this was going to be a movie, I went back and read the, uh, the book series, uh, kind of leading up into this movie. And the funny thing is, when I saw this movie, me and my brother were on a road trip to from Virginia to Wisconsin, and we were actually listening to the Scorch Trials audiobook in the car as we were driving up. And we stopped, and then we stopped at a theater and watched The Maze Runner. Um, kind of in the middle of our road trip. Uh, just kind of a fun experience, and I loved it. I like this movie a lot, and basically, I think I saw it two or three times in theaters, and then I just watched it a lot since then, and I've really, as you said, yeah, I've really become a champion for this movie, then the sequels as it came out. Just, I found, you know, Ball's story, you know, as, as a wannabe filmmaker, was very uh, inspirational. I thought, you know, just it was so cool what he did on the very small $32 million budget, and just i i found just the way he made films really spoke to me uh you know, i'm very i'm i've always been very aware of the storytelling flaws but i think in a, in a way the kind of like the, the structural story the, the story flaws in the structure in a way almost make me appreciate it more because it's kind of proof of what like a really good director can do and what they get what what like how they can just elevate source material um yeah, So that's been my thoughts on this film over the years. Just kind of just have a, a, just a quick discussion, kind of recapping our overall thoughts on this film. Uh, James, what is What's like a big takeaway uh, that you have from this movie?
1: Um, I think what I remember most is just how quickly and effectively it's able to carve out an identity for itself. It's it's not just another one of those YA films. Like no offense to people who love things like Divergent or whatever, but like that's that's what I consider like oh I mean it's just yeah, it's just another one. They've got these directors that nobody's going to write home about. Just there's not a whole lot there. I think there's definitely some some outside of Maze Runner that that are really well made with solid direction, but I think this was one of one of like the best examples within that genre. So just a lot of it is just because of the source material, the, the uniqueness of it. The the giant maze, the the glade itself, has almost like become iconic in my mind. Um, so the visuals, the uh, one of the things yeah, just like the cast themselves and and the different characters. There's just a lot about it that makes it feel unique within a genre that it was kind of on the verge and maybe still is on on being overpopulated. It just found a way to look and feel. Distinct among the rest.
0: Yeah, I think just Wes Ball came in here, and he has such a strong vision. Just the, the from the, a production design standpoint, this there's just so many images, and and you know, be it costume design, set design, the you know, the overall production, uh, or just the way he shoots sequences. There's, there's such a clear vision that just kind of impl- implants itself on your brain. And I think he also has really strong horror chops. And there's just a sense of like mystery and oppression that that is over the entire film. Like even during like happy scenes where it's just kind of characters hanging out, chatting. There's just there's a there's a weight over the whole film. And I think I think just uh there's there's a great sense of pacing where every scene feels like it's giving you it's it's it's, it's there for a reason. And it, it you know it does what it needs to do. It goes. So there's I think a big problem with so many uh, YA films. They feel like there's just so many scenes there that do not necessarily bad scenes but they're, oh they're, they're there because they're part of the book that people like so you just got to cram all this stuff in there they're, they're kind of they're usually very poorly paced and they're way usually way too long like none of those problems really apply here I think part of it is I think about uh, dashner's writing didn't he didn't really focus all that much on just the overall melodrama that is kind of the core you know uh bread and butter of so much ya but I think this this is just really tightly focused on the mystery we're in a maze, how do we get out? And I also love that we're presented into a world that has found a very a stable status quo, but then we we come into the character of Thomas, and then as soon as Thomas comes in, as soon as we come in, that status quo that we can kind of sense starts crumbling. And so basically it's from the moment we are introduced to this world, everything is changing, everything is changing up, you know, the systems that are in place are no longer working, and just the whole thing the whole kind of world they build there is crumbling around us and we and we're following Thomas as he has to you know get get out and find a way out and get everybody out before the giant creeper monsters kill them all um it's just a very tight effective story it, it you know it doesn't it's not i don't think it's two hours long it, it just comes in does what it needs to do and gets out and it never gives you time to be bored or to get tired of it
1: yeah i think the world building is one place that this movie really excels at um and it's also this film is also unique in that a lot of the times I am the kind of person where if if the ending falls flat for me or doesn't work for me, it kind of ruins the whole movie. Like it's it's difficult for me to enjoy things movies like the game because it retroactively diminishes the film. But for some reason, and I don't even know if I can pinpoint why, it, that doesn't happen here because I think the explanation at the end is is incredibly silly and and worthy of an eye roll. But like you, even on rewatch, even after I know what's going on, I'm fully invested in the mystery and uh, in just the intrigue of it all. You know, the scenes where we get to go back and we see that the maze has already been mapped out, and we we get that sense of hopelessness that author Dashner was talking about. It just it keeps sucking me in, even whenever I know where it's going, and so it's able to work against my. mild dislike of of the actual plot and mystery like the reveal itself it it moves beyond that and just works leading up there in a in a really solid way
0: yeah i i think that's a pro i would guess that's probably at least in part by the way ball Put really puts us in there with the characters, like sure that that reveal comes and goes, and then we're back into character drama with Galley and Chuck and Thomas. It's all it's all about characters. And just speaking of the characters, um, have you warmed up to Dylan O'Brien over the years at all?
1: So I've, I've never disliked him. Um, I just I guess I was never my my opinion of him probably looked like dislike because it's standing next <laughs> to your uh, love of him. And I like I said I really enjoy him. I just. I'm not quite there with the whole Tom Cruise comparisons yet.
0: Well, that's funny. You said Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah, I, I love this guy. I think he is just a movie star. I think he, he has you know, both just the just the, the basic acting skill. I think he's a really good, powerful actor, but I think he also has an incredible amount of charisma. Just he knows he knows how to play to the camera. And just to the comparisons to Tom Cruise for me that's kind of not not necessarily in that kind of just smoldering charisma that Tom Cruise has i think uh Dylan O'Brien's a much more naturalistic actor um but i think it's just his physicality there's a similar kind of conviction to everything he does every movement he makes there's so they're made with just so much conviction like, i love the way he runs this kind of awkward gangly flailing thing he has or the way he just the way he holds a spear or holds a gun or just everything he does he feels like ev- he's just so present it's, there's so much energy and conviction behind it all um i just find him really watchable
1: i think he's a great physical performer you know I would, I would never argue against that i guess for me i just i find him for some reason i just find him someone difficult to like emotionally attach myself to uh, i don't really feel a whole lot of charisma from him but uh, who knows i'm very much willing to be won over
0: uh T- thomas brody sangster he, he's a kid been around for a long time he, he's always really good very charming um i like that he's, he's he's kind of he's kind of the eternal second in command like he's he's not the guy that's going to be the leader but he's a, he's this very steady guy that's just gonna you just kind of just rise up to the second to the second place and be there to support whoever is leader and he kind of just he's at for Alby. then when thomas takes over he just kind of just drifts right into that position again. He's just, I think a very likable, uh, character.
1: He's, he's the Edmund from Prince Caspian for this movie. Yeah, <laughs> Everything comes back. Uh, to And idea. then <laughs> Edmund was probably like, well, like I said, he's my favorite character from Prince Caspian. So it only stands to reason that, uh, that newt's my favorite here. I I like him a lot. Like you said, he, one, he does have a very distinct look, you know, his accent, obviously in the midst of these other American accents, it helps make him memorable. Uh, and he there's just something like so like like inherently likable about him just the way he holds himself the way he he jokes and stuff i i feel like he's he is the perfect version of like that best friend second in command always going to have your back kind of guy And then
0: there's a great i think a depth to hide him he's the one who kind of convinces thomas after, after thomas realizes that he's actually a bad guy kind of like none of that matters get off your ass and get get us out of here kind of he's just the the very supportive character um, I think, uh, Ka- uh, the character of Teresa does, gets very little to do in the, just in this film she kind of becomes incredibly important later on in the series but I think you know Kaya Scotillaria Scodelari- is a very good actor so a good guy, yeah so she brings a lot uh, Chuck is real, is cute and fun and very sad with what happens to him
1: yeah I also like I'm also a, a big fan of Will Poulter uh, I mean yeah I feel like most of the positive things I had to say about the last episode was just how much I enjoyed him in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, what's what's the difference in time between Dawn Treader and this? How how far apart?
0: Uh, 2009, 2014. No, 2010,
1: 2014. Okay. Oh, man, he, he is considerably like older and more mature here, um, but he's still... I don't know if I'd go so far as stealing the show because I think Nude is still my favorite, but he's really, really good here. Um, And one of the things I appreciate about him is he's not nearly as one note as his character could have been. Um,
0: And was in the book.
1: Yeah. And and that's the thing. I could just the way he's used in this film, it's easy to, I guess, infer what he would have been in, in the book but here i don't i think part of it is just the the screenplay gives him a bit more to do i'm assuming than the book does and i think he plays it with a level of emotional sincerity that that keeps him from ever wandering too far into the just net obligatory skeptic guy who's going to fight tooth and nail against our protagonist because like we have that with almost every kind of film about the the new person coming in but the way he plays it it feels it feels like like the Alpha Dog trying to protect, you know, his friend it, it it feels neat like it's just who he is as a character as opposed to who this archetype is.
0: And he's often making good points as well. The script allows him to have that. And we, we gotta talk just talk about the action in this film. I, I love the way US directs action. I would I would liken him to I think JJ Abrams. Uh and I think you know he's actually maybe even a stronger uh, action director than Abrams was coming at, into like uh into like Mission Impossible. 3. I think like he cut he cuts a lot less and he's able to pull the camera a lot farther back than Abrams was, uh in the, in the, you know he's in like Mission Impossible Three and Star Trek, um. But what he t- he just has a set, again <laughs> the the word we always use for JJ energy. There is an energy and pace to these action scenes that I don't know I've ever seen anywhere. Just you from like especially the two sequences in the maze the moment they start you're just they're just running and you are just like trying to keep up and there's just stuff happening and doors are closing things are falling they're trying to call through tight spaces and i literally every time they end i just kind of exhale a huge breath because there's he just builds up so much tension in you as the sequence is going and there's there's like three or four sequences throughout the the film and each one of them is so intense and just the visual storytelling he uses in these sequences where every shot has a purpose is conveying multiple things and often like multiple movements will be happening within the frame and it's just the perfect camera movement to to make that to make that one motion of the actor look the, the coolest it can uh you know it's hard to explain uh you know over audio but I, don't know. I just, I just absolutely love his action. I think you know he, he's his action has gotten better and better as the series has gone. But just right off the bat, there's he just he has such a strong sense of how to create compelling action sequences.
1: So I have two different thoughts of him as an action director. Um, I'll start with the negative first, just real quick, because it's not huge. The the way he directs like actual confrontational action here uh didn't work super well for me like the night raid to me feels a bit a bit flat uh, and not not super inventive the the one that works for me the least is is the last confrontation with the grievers on the bridge a lot mm. of that scene just feels like shots of the group huddled together poking outside the frame with sticks and then shots of the grievers with sticks poking into frame poking at them and i
0: love both those sequences so much <laughs>
1: <laughs> like I, th- I don't think they're bad per se, but it's just they, they feel they feel pretty static to me and, and uninspired, especially whenever they exist within the same film as as like the chase sequences and the maze sequences. And so my other thought of him is that whenever it actually just comes to these bigger, more grand sequences, I think he that's where I think he earns the Abrams comparisons. Um, I, the the scene where he's he's leaving and all of the the doors and like the columns and stuff are shutting around him. He's like he's running side by side, waiting for the the opportunity the window to, to jump through. Um, I I think about other scenes, other comparable scenes. I don't know how exactly like relevant they are, but you know things like the the King Kong escape from the the Brachiosaurus stampede or. Or some of the more outlandish stuff, and like maybe Desolation of Smaug. A lot of time with these scenes where like the environments are largely CGI, and we're just moving through everything breaking down, they they rarely ever work for me. I, I just kind of roll my eyes at how absurd they they look and feel. But for some reason, the way he moves the camera here is just so fluid and so engaging and compelling that these are easily my favorite sequences of the, of the film. They're just they're so energetic, and they feel dangerous. Like there's there's a weight to them, and I think one of one of Ball's strengths here is how he plays with the environment. Like the scene where they're hiding from the Griever in the maze, just the way he he moves around corners and looks up and down. Just he's constantly choosing. He's constantly making choices that are going to elevate the scene and and make it that much more suspenseful without ever like crossing that line of of being too much of, of just of getting you know going uh getting to the point of diminishing returns it's just it's that sweet spot of always keeping you on the edge of your seat without ever just you know having you roll your eyes at the absurdity of it all
0: uh, before real quick before we move into the, our discussion of the score, I think my big criticism of this film is, as you mentioned, I think the actual questions why. Like, w- w- when you're presented with such an engaging mystery, which a lot of sci-fi films do, and then you get the answer, you like, oh, that was it. Or or worse, you're like, huh, that makes no sense. And this is more of one of those, you know, that makes no sense kind of uh, deals. Um, like, the actual answer, and we'll, we'll probably g- get all into this in The Death Cure because the actual the questions why kind of fluctuate across the series, which is kind of funny. Uh, I think as they realized that the, the actual answers in the book weren't very good. Um, so we'll get to that later. But yeah, just the actual answer why isn't very satisfying. But for me, it's what, and also I think the characters, think by necessity, by they all come in a, as amnesiacs. There's not a lot of character development or character growth, which I actually kind of like that it's just more about discovering who you are right here and now, so there's not really a lot of room for growth. So yeah, for, for me, it's just I I like these characters. I really like just like being with these people, and so and as long as the you know, the danger is kept up, as long as the suspense, the mystery, the pacing is there, is just a really fun ride. There's very little underneath, but I, I find it just a very entertaining story.
1: Yeah, I think you kind of hit on why it works uh, earlier, which is despite how how enjoyable the intrigue and the mystery is, the intrigue and mystery itself isn't really. The core—it's what's so engaging and, and enjoyable about it—is—is is, is watching the characters engage in the in the mystery and the intrigue. It's all very much focused on the characters, so that when the story falls flat, we're still there with them, and and they do a good job with them. And the last thing that I want to say before we move into the score conversation is, um, and, and you you do a good job of bringing this up just as a as a praise for a ball. The way he uses a budget is incredible. Like this, oh, man. this does not show its but this does not feel like it was made on a small budget. And you don't get the feeling that any corners were cut. Every the maze, the glade, the creatures, everything in this movie looks like it looks exactly how they wanted it to. There's nothing that feels like well they they wanted this to look like this, but they had to settle for this. It, this looks like the movie that I'm assuming Ball saw in his head.
0: Yeah, I think being a you know a he was. He worked in CGI in in, in the industry. He also he like a, he ran an animation studio, and that's his first sh- that short he made that got him. This was an animated short, so I think he knew he knew just how to shoot the film so that you could just add the CGI elements in like little bits here and there, and they they would just work, even though you don't have all the budget to polish it. So yeah, I want I want to do a kind of a full discussion on the score since we didn't really cover that all that much in our talk on um on underrated. So the score was done by a composer named John Pisano, who had almost done, done almost exclusively like TV and video games. Um, he did the theme song, the theme music, and then all all, all the music for the uh, Daredevil show on Netflix. That's probably what he the biggest thing he did before this movie. What I what I really like about this score is I think it's a very interesting mix of just traditional orchestral music, but also some a very distinct um electronic. Uh, bits here and there, or kind of undertones. Uh, I think it creates a pretty unique sound. Uh, there's a very, there's kind of this creepiness. Well, he'll have like traditional orchestral music, but then underneath it, he has all the electronic stuff going and just making these like little discordant noises or, or tones that kind of just make the whole thing feel a little on edge and kind of creepy. I think there's, there's a very, a very um, there's a very mournful quality to the score. Uh, and just a very mysterious vibe to it all. But I think also just there's a lot of heart to it. It's a very it's very soulful music. It's, there's like a lot of like heart and longing uh, underneath the mystery of it all that I just I find it a very a very good listen. All right, so just uh, running through some of the tracks. Um, first one is the Maze Runner. This is just kind of the main theme and anthem of the um of the score, and I really love this track. It's, it's very exciting and propulsive. I think the main theme the maze runner theme is kind of mixed throughout the score very well but just in this track i love it a lot i think there's just a there's such a, there's an energy to it it just gets you pumped up i cannot i don't know how many times i've listened to that it. it's probably in the hundreds um i just remember for like a year two years after it, i would always just when whenever i was driving in the car i would put on the uh the maze runner uh just just this one theme and listen to it over and over again
1: yeah so I, before this episode i had never actually sat down and just listened through the score and i enjoyed this track a bit um i i think that i probably need to listen to it more in addition to just sitting down through the entire album and and listening to you know the intricacies of it and the way it, it runs throughout other scores but Without having like you know a whole lot of listen through, I, I still enjoy it though just as a track.
0: I'm um, so running through a few more tracks. So there was "What Is This Place?" It's like a very mysterious piece. It has like I think it might be a Spanish guitar, I know some uh, some kind of guitar going over it. It's a very absorbing. Um, and then there's my my name is Thomas. Has this really mournful piano and flute. I think it does a really, really cool mix of the instruments and electronic, a, a very longful, a, kind of a longing, soulful piece.
1: Yeah, this this is the one that just on this one, you know, listen through, this is one of the ones that stuck out to me a lot. I really liked the, the sense of mystery and mi- mixed with the, the, you know, the tribal kind of sound of it really helps evoke just the kind of group that this has become and and the lifestyle that they live
0: yeah and then there's banishment this is like really intense strings and drums with these really creepy electronic sounds going underneath and it just i love just you know it feels off it's like representing the emotion the characters are feeling with it they're doing something they know they have to do but it also feels so wrong there's this kind of it just feels there's something icky about the music and it's just building and building intensity and tragedy I think a very powerful piece
1: yeah th- this is probably my favorite of them all that I listen to um, I think it works so well in the scene itself and, oh, this, this this scene is really heightens yeah the scene itself is absolutely fantastic and, and the music really heightens it and it it reuses that kind of tribal sound but in a much more dangerous kind of way and so it's incredibly evocative and perfect for for what's happening on screen.
0: Yeah, kind of a, a bit of jungle drums, getting you know, the Lord of the Flies vibes in there. Yeah. Um, then there's a, a chat with Chuck. It's a very sweet kind of plaintive piece, very sad piano, um, making you like the kid. <laughs> uh, then there's Wicked is Good and Thomas Remembers. These two pieces that kind of flow together. It's, it's a, again, the you know, very sad piano with his uneasy electronic undertones. Um, it's like, he its where he's, he's learning his identity, but also learning that he was not a good person beforehand. It's, there's a very, it's just kind of a soulfulness. It, it's just, it's kind of mournful, but you know, it's also him learning who he is. And then it moves into the Thomas remembers, um, which is like a piece that's, that's kind of building off the previous one It's still sad, but it's also somewhat hopeful. Um, then there's a goodbye. This one, it opens kind of sad yet hopeful. Then it builds into this really kind of powerful anthem of hope and determination as they, as they're, you know, charging out, you know, they've all, they've, you know, they found their purpose and they're all going to fight the Grievers. Um, and then finally there's the finale. And this one is, oh, this one hurts. Uh, it's kind of like a heartbreaking lament for Chuck. They bring back the sad piano that you had with a chat with a chat with Chuck. And now it's like so much sadder, and these really low, mournful vocals in the background, and it it really makes me want it. It's it, it's almost on the level of, of like Justice from Murder on the Orient Express. It's not quite there, but it's almost there as far as every time I listen to it, I want to cry. But then what's really cool is like it then it just starts building into like excitement. You know, they're they're they're, they're going to be free. You know, there's the, the strings and really cool percussion. But then as they get out and there, the helicopter kind of falls back into kind of like a slightly more stoic version of the lament that ends on like this really thrilling promise of more. It's like, it's one of those tracks that I, I talked about, you know, Line, the Worse, the I feel like it tells a story. There's like a very clear track of emotion and, and feeling going through. And I think a lot of these tracks, I think I, Paisano did a great job of just telling stories through his music. Um, that I, I always, I always find that those are the most satisfying scores to listen to outside the film.
1: Yeah, that last track finale definitely feels like like a journey to me, with with meaningful ebb and flow and sound and emotion, and, and that was another one that really stuck to me. I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised. I've got a, a playlist on Spotify of just film tracks I like a lot, and I wouldn't be surprised if this one and, uh, and probably Banishment Land on there.
0: All right. So as far as our final star rating, uh, our star rating for this film, James, what do you rate this out of five stars?
1: So the the side of me that just really gets hung up on, on the, the plot sometimes wants to do 3.5 but just because of how memorable it's become especially with you know you know a, a good bit over a year of distance between my first watch in it and just how present it still feels in my mind I think for West Ball's sake I give it a 4 out of 5 because of <laughs> uh, how much he was able to do with you know just a a fairly shallow, just why not? Not you know, not a knock against the source material or the or the plot and everything. It's just I think he really elevated it and and created something that would have totally been lost had had someone like Hardwick stayed on.
0: Yeah. Um. So yeah, I'm also at four out of five stars. It's just a. Very lean, mean, satisfying, fun adventure story. Um, it, on its initial release, it earned 102 million domestically and 245 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of 348 million on its 34 million dollar budget, which is 10 times the production budget at the box office. You know, 348 million would be like a bomb for you know 100 200 million dollar film, but with something that cheap, I think that's massively successful. Um, as far as the critical reception. It got mixed to mildly positive reviews. It holds a 65% on, on Rotten Tomatoes and a 57% on Metacritic. Uh, most reviews kind of, they, they praise the filmmaking, they praise the acting, but they kind of criticize the story. Um, I think, like, most people, like, like, they lump it in, like, oh, it's just one of those YA films. It's a little better than most YA films, but it's still a YA film kind of thing. That's kind of the tone I get from a lot of the um, the critics. I think they, they appreciate this. This one feels a bit more hard-edged and serious than a lot of YA films are, but I don't think many people really took it all that seriously out, out you know outside of its genre.
1: That's one of the things that I appreciate so much about it is it's kind of harder edge. It's there's there's a sense of danger and I think you get to feel that a lot more considering we spend zero time just on needless melodrama.
0: Yeah. As far as like it's it's overall legacy like yeah, that was, that was that was better than I thought it would be. But it, it doesn't seem to have all that much of an impact outside the fandom. It has, it has a very strong And I, I do I am noticing here and there like online like passionate fans, and not not just like YA people, but like <clears throat> actual film people. Like that was a really solid little movie. So I think it's kind of got a little, like a little growing following uh, it, within you know film culture as well, not just within the uh, the YA group. And speaking of West Ball. I get, it's it's getting kind of weird and unnerving. How often, as soon as we start a series, big news will break. Um, because I have been like really trolling uh the news and trolling and you know stalking West Ball to find out when's he getting his next project. I was almost worried if the the uh the accident that happened to Dylan O'Brien on the Death Gear shoot might have like hurt his career because it had been so long since we heard anything. We heard he was going to do a, a um an adaptation of a graphic novel called fall of gods that was like a year ago and we've heard like nothing about that since then uh but then as it came out um i think like three three days ago as of recording uh he's got a new project it's called mouse guard it's based on a comic about a medieval group of mice uh and it's going to be starring andy circus and uh, thomas brody sangster again and it's
1: a read the cheap spinoff
0: yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be entirely motion capture uh matt reeves is gonna be a producer it's happening all at fox and supposedly it's gonna start shooting in like a month so fingers crossed that gets going
1: sounds like Redwall.
0: yeah that's what that's the first thing i thought as well which i guess that means we're never gonna get a Redwall movie which kind of makes me sad but hey i'll take more west (laughs) ball Alright, so that was the, our mini-sode on the Maze Runner. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I'd like to ask you guys to uh, head over to iTunes and leave us a radiant review. Uh, if you want to follow us on Facebook, we are there as at Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to uh, follow us on Twitter and uh, Instagram, we are there as at Franchise Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James?
1: Uh, so you can follow me at uh, Letterboxd. I'm there as J.L. Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Um maybe trying to put some more reviews up during spring break with that just a week away um and then you and i are both admins over at the outer rim a star wars fan group uh it's a facebook page and we're we're in full swing with a lot of different things we got going over there we got giveaways and and marathons and and all sorts of stuff going on so so definitely join us over there if you love the series as a whole and want to talk about it
0: yeah, we just started a, a rewatch of the entire Star Wars saga. That's all the films and the uh, three animated TV shows. We're going to be watching the entire thing through uh, before episode nine. We just started like a week ago. So if that sounds interesting, you can head all over and uh, check us out. And I'm also on Letterboxd, and there's Gabriel Green. I'm on Twitter as at Gabe a. Green, and I'm on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. Our next episode is actually going to be another mini-sode in probably a day or two uh, on the Scorch Trials, which we will actually be recording as soon as I stop talking.
1: So, until probably a couple days from now, we will see you in the sequel. We
0: get out now, or we die trying.